All right, well, please turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Victory is sweet, isn't it? Victory is sweet. Who doesn't love to win? It's important, of course, to learn how to lose well and and be a good sport and all that stuff, right? It's good. But when someone asks you how the game went, do they really want to know about the new friend you made from the other team? Do they really want to hear you talk about the value of physical exercise and fresh air? I'm kind of joking around a little bit for to prove a point here, but they, they might give certificates at the end of the season for good sportsmanship, but they don't leave those in the trophy case, do they? Uh, do hunters, do hunters mount pictures and notes on the wall, giving an account of the serenity they experienced in the great outdoors? No. What do they do? They, they hang dead animal heads on their walls, right? That's what hunters do. They want to show the kill, the win. And I, like I said, I'm being a little facetious, but, but just to prove a point here, people want to win. We want victory. And we love to celebrate when we win, don't we? We love celebrations. Uh, the song they play after the championships is not, we are participants. It's, we are the champions. Uh, one famous way of celebrating the championship is to say that you're going to Disney World. Going to Disney World. Have you heard that commercial before? Uh, every year uh, since the early 80s, I think 83, after the Super Bowl, uh, the commercial starts. When you wish upon a star. That song. And then they, they bring the player, the MVP on to the camera. And the announcer comes on and says, Emmett Smith or Joe Montana, Peyton Manning, Barry Sanders. N- never him though, right? It was never Barry Sanders. But they would say right then after that, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And then hopefully that player with their child, right, that makes it even better if they got their child in their arms, they say, I'm going to Disney World, woo! And then all of us at home, feeling maybe a little ill from all the chips and dip we just ate, staying up way too late to watch the end of the game, we might think, we're supposed to think, hey, winners go to Disney World. I must go to Disney World. And then, of course, Disney wins. You see? That's how it always ends. Disney wins. Not really, but. Even then, though, after that Super Bowl MVP goes and has a fun time at Disney World, and after all the parades, all the interviews, all the celebrations are over, what do they do? Well, they have to go back and report to training camp. And they got to do it all over again, right? they got to start all over again. Next season's about to start. Their victory is only temporary. Fun for a while. Temporary. Even if they play really well consistently for many, many years, and they make it to the Hall of Fame, make it to the Hall of Fame, they'll have that moment. They'll give their speech. They'll even have a statue of their head put on display in Canton, Ohio, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame Museum. And don't get me wrong, that would be a lot of fun, right? What an accomplishment. It'd be fun for some of us as sports fans to, to go see that museum. Maybe it'd be, it'd be death to others to have to go there and walk through that place, but it'd be fun for some people to go through and look at that museum. 
But the time that we have to enjoy those victories, they're limited. It's limited. They're temporary. Those trophies, the statues, all the old uh, game balls, all the other relics they have there, they're all going to stay in Canton. They won't make it into the life to come. And if Jesus doesn't come back for another 2,000 years, that sounds kind of crazy, but think, if Jesus doesn't come back even for another 2,000 years, will people then look at our stadiums, our big old stadiums, and the way that we look at the Romans, the ruins of the Romans, their coliseums, their arenas? Will people 2,000 years look back at our stadiums with wonder at our achievements given what limited technologies we had at the time? Uh, One word the Bible has for all these achievements, all the achievements that we can have in this world, the word is vanity. Vanity. Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, says it this way. Solomon writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Everything. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon went after every pleasure this world has to offer. He pursued all wisdom and knowledge. He even said that he pursued madness and folly, foolishness. And after all these pursuits, nothing being kept from him. He concluded uh, these two things. First, Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That was one conclusion. The second is this, the final two verses of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. And then he says this, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon did everything he could to please himself. Everything to please himself. And it never worked. It never brought him lasting joy. It was all vanity. The only one, then, that we should live to please is the one who made us. The whole end of man is to be what we were created to be by our maker, to be worshipers of the one true God. Uh, What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lasting, everlasting joy. Remember the Corinthian Christians, we've been reading through this book, studying this book, the Corinthian Christians had struggled with this, didn't they? Uh, They were caught up in all kinds of ways, using the idea of church, things they could get out of the church, forgiveness of sins, that doctrine, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, the relationships they had in the church, all of those things and more being used and manipulated, utilized for their own selfish pleasure. And all of us... Lord willing, as we've gone through this book and as we near the end of it, should we think of ourselves as better than them? Glad I'm not like that. Well, no, we shouldn't think that. Hopefully, as we've studied this book, we've seen things where we think, praise God for his grace. 
and let's grow. Let's go. Let's get after this. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we look back to the last verse of Ecclesiastes and where it says, God will bring every deed into judgment. And if I take an honest look at myself, at myself and my condition, and an accurate look at the holiness, the perfect, righteous, good justice of God, I should start thinking a lot less about how I can win another temporary uh, vain victory in this world. And I need to start thinking more about the fact that I've already lost. Because we're all sinners. On our own, where are we? Are we winners on our own? No, we've lost. And we are lost and without hope. Dead in our sins. But God... What did Paul write at the beginning of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the word of God. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it is in this truth that we stand. In that truth. It is in this truth Believing in, putting our faith and hope in Christ's death on the cross in our place. Suffering the just wrath that we deserve for our sin. It is in this truth that we are being saved. So that in Christ, for the Christian who is resting in Christ, every one of our evil deeds, it said even those done in secret that nobody else knows about, Every one of our evil deeds has already been judged. Judged. Justice has already been served. And walking now in freedom, alive in Christ, the Proverbs that we're reading this weekend in our devotions say that God is delighting in us when we follow him. Christ died for our sin We went from being lost and dead in our sin, Christ dying for our sin, to now God delighting in us. God delights in us. Talk about victory. Victory. And even better, this victory isn't temporary. The joy and the delighting are not fleeting. It's just getting started. Continuing in in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we saw that just like Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. Uh, These bodies uh, won't be temporary dying bodies anymore. But in the resurrection, these bodies will all be changed. The perishable, remember, becoming imperishable. The dishonorable being made glorious. The weak will be made powerful. And the natural, our bodies limited by uh, natural law, natural limitations, will become spiritual, ready for heavenly, eternal living. Those great football players, they're going to have bronze statues made in their image to look just like them that are going to sit on those tables or ledges or pillars there in Canton, Ohio. And bronze statues last a long time. But those statues aren't the men. They're just statues. They're just bronze. And we, 
unless you become a professional Hall of Fame football player. We aren't getting statues made in our image. Better than that. We are being made into the image of another. Not like a carbon copy mirror image, like physical appearance. You understand? Verse 49 said this, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Having a bronze statue made of your head will one day prove to be vanity. Being made into the eternal, living representative of Jesus Christ, that's victory. And that's what we will have in our resurrection bodies. Eternal victory. So, let's see now uh, what more we can learn from these next eight verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. So as I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, uh, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So our flesh, we, as we are, cannot inherit the kingdom. We cannot change ourselves. Uh, These bodies and ourselves in them will never be good enough for eternity, good enough for heaven. We can't make them good enough. We can't do enough or be good enough to earn the right to the exchange. We cannot appeal to our family history. None of that. God has to change us. It is of God's grace. It says in Ephesians 2, For by grace, grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Heaven is not going to be a big celebration of how awesome I was. Okay? And that should make us all happy, right? But it's going to be a celebration of how amazing God has been to us. God's grace to save us. Remember, please know this. Salvation comes to us by grace alone. Through faith alone alone. In Christ alone. There is no other Savior. To the glory of God alone. And then this fifth aspect of the Reformation that we're getting ready to celebrate again this month, right? According to the Scriptures alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. And that last truth is so wonderful. Know this. Not because I said so. That's not true because I told you. It's not true because any other preacher, any other church leader, any pastor, priest, any hierarchy, church order, church history. It's not true because of any of that. It's not true because any person said so. It's true because God said so in his word. That's where we look. Now, in the next few verses... Paul answers this question. Uh, What about those of us who aren't yet in the grave? Great question. (laughs) If the dead are raised in Christ, what if we're not dead when he comes? So verse 51, he says, Behold, that must mean there's some good news coming, right? He wouldn't say behold if bad news was coming. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Mystery meaning we weren't going to figure this out on our own. God had to reveal this to us. And he has. And since God revealed this to us, and in his word, 
Uh, Paul says, you know I'm not making this up. And so, church, you know I'm not making this up, right? This is what we're reading from the Word of God. And Paul says, we, so Christians, shall not all sleep. And remember, sleep is being used as a figure of speech for being dead. If you believe in resurrection for the Christian, uh, when we die, what are we going to do before too long? We're going to wake up, right? So you use the word sleep for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're not, we all, we shall not all die uh, before this resurrection happens, but we will all be changed. And we think about that, right? What did we just read? And we might say, my goodness, what is that going to look like? What is that going to look like? All those who have died in Christ? How many is that? All around the world. All being raised from the dead. Every believer still alive. Being changed. Uh, Being changed from life in these dying bodies to life everlasting. What is that going to look like? Will there be like a signal or or a a cool countdown clock or something in the sky? Uh, Will our bodies start to glow or something and get brighter and brighter and brighter until it's over? Uh, Will our uh, little beams of light start flashing around inside of us and like poking out of our eyes and ears and stuff until all the change is over? The imagination starts soaring, right? Uh, Will we see dirt flying up in the air at all the cemeteries? When those, when those dead bodies raise, or will we see water splashing out of the seas for that moment? What will it look like? Will the world see us and, and ooh and awe as our eternally improved selves emerge from the ashes? What will it be like? Well, wouldn't you know, the Bible has an answer to these questions. How is this going to happen? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's not Hollywood, is it? Boy, he could have milked that, right? Well, God does better than that. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So the actual event, the moment, will be instantaneous. And the time it takes me to snap my fingers or less, it's done. It's over. It's done. Go ahead and turn to another passage that teaches about this moment. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And this moment, uh, this event, is often referred to as the rapture. The rapture. And the word rapture is not in the Bible in English, but it comes from a Latin word that means uh, to seize or to catch and carry off. Uh, meaning the moment when Christ is going to come and snatch us up. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Okay, this passage is going to help us to further ex- explain. So First Thessalonians, if you're turning there still, if you get to First uh, and Second Timothy, you went too far, okay? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And this sounds a little bit similar, like he had some same idea from the church at Corinth. Uh, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others uh, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So there's that mystery part. That we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command. That's awesome right there. He's in control. A cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. There's that word. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the best part. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So remember, and it's done. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first and then those who are alive. Like that? Maybe we're like... Or... I don't know, okay? I don't know. Either way, it's going to be great, okay? Either way, it's going to be great. But now, since we're in 1 Thessalonians, please keep reading with me. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to uh, have anything written to you. But I'm going <laughs> to, verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep. And this doesn't mean dying here. This means you ought to be busy doing something, but you're taking a snooze, okay? Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake Keep after it, serve in the Lord, and be sober. Now, here's why I wanted to read that. Okay, some, some people like to argue a little, don't they? They like to argue about when Jesus is going to do this. When Jesus is going to return and rapture the church. Some people like to predict when it's going to happen. Even though the Bible says, no one knows. Okay, so if you're watching a preacher on TV or hearing somebody on, on the radio or a podcast or YouTube or something like that, and, or this guy, and they say, Jesus is coming back on this day at this time. No. No. They're disobeying Scripture and doing that. Okay? Some people like to argue about whether it will be before or after uh, what's called the tribulation a pre-tribulational rapture, a post-tribulational rapture. Some people even go for mid. And we're just, we're not going to get into that today, okay? There's a lot of stuff to learn there and to think about there, but Jessica, my wife, she's teaching children's church, okay, today, and I promised her that this wouldn't be too long, so we need to think of, we need to put a pin in that one, okay? We'll come back to that another time. Okay, it's Pastor Appreciation Day, okay? So, but, would you agree with me? Would you agree with me? It seems like the Word of God is not quite as interested in us being right about the timing of the rapture and the resurrection as the Word of God calls on us to be ready for it. To be ready for it. It's much less important to be right about the timing of these events than it is to be ready for them. And if the churches at Thessalonica and the church at Corinth in Greece in the first century, 
if they were supposed to be ready, I guess we'd better be ready. And remember, that readiness is not just getting a lawn chair and sitting out on the highest hill in Mount Pleasant, okay? That's not how we get ready. We get ready by being busy serving the Lord. Where will we be? What will we be up to? What kind of a life will we be leading when Jesus comes back? Okay? And if he comes back in the middle of the night and you're asleep, that doesn't mean you were slacking off. It means you were asleep because it was nighttime, okay? What's our life look like? What, what direction are we heading? Are we growing? Are we pursuing him? Are we serving him? And may the Lord find us working and following hard after him if he should come in our lifetime. That's the most important. And then, church, let me say something else, okay? I'm going to go down this path a little bit more, a little further. It is pretty amazing how every four years or so, there's this spike. You, you start to hear people saying more and more, oh, Jesus is coming soon. And don't get me wrong, I said that we ought to be ready now. And if it didn't just happen then, which we know it didn't, ready now, right? We're to be ready at all times. But I think we have to be careful that we don't get so caught up in the moment and the rhetoric that we think because uh, the wrong candidate gets elected that God's going to just have no choice but to send Jesus back. Uh, Church, there are Christians today in other parts of the world, and I know it's hard to believe this right now with how what everybody's saying. But there are other Christians today in other parts of the world that would love to have any one of the candidates we have to choose from compared to the government and the leaders they're living under right now or perhaps even dying under. On top of that, and I love this country. I love this country. We are so blessed to be Americans, aren't we? But this country is not some kind of uh, New Testament Israel. We're not Israel. Uh, We are not the new Jerusalem. I don't know of any prophecy that mentions our country specifically in Scripture. Um, Our country, as we know it, uh, could have come into existence and then eventually turn into something else entirely as if it ceased to exist and not a word of Scripture would have been broken Uh, No prophecy left unfulfilled. Uh, Just this week, think, on on October 6th, we celebrate, or we don't maybe, but it was the anniversary of the martyrdom of William Tyndale, who had the audacity to translate the Bible into English so that anybody could read it. He was put to death for that. That was his official crime. And that didn't happen in North Korea. That didn't happen in Afghanistan or Iran. That was England. England. And yet, here we are. Here we are, all these years later. Think how many terrible events have happened all over the world in the last 2,000 years. Terrible things. Since Jesus ascended into heaven. And the angel said he's coming back. I just think we need to realize how blessed we've been. How blessed we've been to think that these events would just be too much for God to allow without sending Jesus to stop it all. Things are crazy this year, but think of how blessed we've been 
to think that this is just too much for God to handle, that he's got to send Jesus back. We've been very blessed. We need to be careful not to get spoiled. And just a little bit further down the road here, and I just want to pastor you for a second and warn you of something, okay, that is out there. Please also be careful of this. Uh, Some folks even call for Jesus' return because of a threat of socialism or further down that road, communism. Personally, I'm not a big fan of those things. But what about our brothers and sisters in Cuba? We have family there. What about our brothers and sisters in Venezuela right now who are like warning us, right? How about China? Our brothers and sisters in North Korea. Why would we think that Jesus needs to come back for us to keep us from ever having to deal with those things? But not for them. Not for them. You know, too bad for them. But we can't have any of this. Jesus did need to come back to to keep the Chinese from communism. But he better not let us go through this. Wait, what is that? Please understand, that kind of thinking is a direct result of the false prosperity gospel. That is a result of the prosperity gospel. The idea that Jesus died to make you healthy, to make you wealthy. But Jesus died for something far more significant, far more important than bigger paychecks, lower taxes, and fewer visits to the doctor. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died to reconcile us eternally to a holy God. And God has something infinitely more valuable in store for us. Okay? Verse 53. Thank you for listening to that commercial break. Verse 53. What does God have in store? For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All the mess that we do see going on in the world around us, all the death that we experience and the dying, gone. Swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. The phrase is taken from Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, where it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, because we see him. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then verse 55 in 1 Corinthians 15, the the death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's taken from Hosea 13. Hosea 13, where it says, I, meaning God, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And these promises of redemption in Hosea 13 were directly in that passage given to Israel 
and specifically to Ephraim, in their sin. While they were rejecting God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God promised to graciously redeem a sinful people. That's great news because that's us. And we have become partakers of that promise by the great grace of God alone. Verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The statement, the power of sin is in the law, that just means uh, because we have God's law, we know we've sinned. We know we're guilty. We know justice must be served. Don't you hate it when you're driving out in the country and you can't see a speed limit sign for anything? And you wonder what's going on or how fast you should be going or whatever the case may be? Going down, um, I didn't say this in the first service, bonus material. Going down Preston by the soccer fields. That's the worst place. It's 25 there. Public service announcement. That's 25 miles an hour on that, on that part of town, okay? You hate it when you don't know how fast you're supposed to be going. It feels like it should be this... What the law does, we see those signs. Now we know how fast we're supposed to drive or slow. And we know if we're going 20 miles over that and the lights start flashing behind us, we know why. And we know that we're going to have to pay the price. Justice will be served, right? That's what the law does. It helps us to see we've done wrong. That God is perfect and good and his law is right and we've violated it and justice must be served if our God is good and righteous and just. And that justice is death. The wages of sin is death. But God, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I read this this week. Think of it this way. When bees sting you, when a bee comes and sting you, stings you, who does that bee sting next? No one, right? When a bee stings you, what happens to their stinger? It should get stuck in you. If it got you good, the stinger should get stuck in you. That bee's stinging career is over, right? So if the sting of sin is death, and we have been given eternal life through Christ, where is death's sting? Where did our punishment go? It's in Christ. In Christ. Death's stinger got stuck in Christ. The stinger is gone. It's stung all the stinging it can sting. There's nothing left, right? In Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation left for us? Because Christ took it all. All of it. There's nothing left. Why is there no more wrath for us to face? Because Christ endured it all. All of it. If you sin on your way home, there's no more wrath left for you to face because Christ already took it for you. So don't go home and sin. (laughs) Why has death lost its sting? Because Christ suffered its sting in our place at the cross. Listen, dying is no fun, right? Dying is terrible. Dying is hard. But death? Death? 
Christian, we have nothing to fear in death. Nothing. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then we're just waiting at that point for the day when Christ returns and our, our bodies are changed forever into imperishable, glorious, powerful, heavenly resurrection bodies. So we have no fear in death. We don't live in a way that is fearful of what's to come. We don't have to live in a way like this is all we get. And there's nothing more, so get everything out of this as you can. We don't have to live that way. There's no sting in death for us. All we have is more and better, sinless, eternal life. And so Paul concludes, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A couple things in this verse. First, these words, steadfast, immovable, abounding. Steadfast. In the Greek, the word means to be firmly situated. You're holding your ground. I remember early in the chapter, Paul rebuked the church for not being knowledgeable of the things of the Lord. We have all of this information. Goodness, our, our time, our day, we have all of this information, all of this asp, uh, um, all of this access is the word I was looking for. All of this access to scripture, to good books that help us to study it. Uh, we need to be knowledgeable of the things of the Lord with, with all of the world's philosophies, the world's teachings, uh, the world's information, battling for space in our minds. All of you came to church today. I came to church today having heard things even this morning probably that are competing for real estate in our minds, in our thinking, that are contrary to the truth of God's word. They're battling to hold sway, to hold power in our minds, to change our thinking, to change our desires, to change our actions. There's a battle going on. And knowing the truth of the resurrection, knowing the truth of the victory that we have in Christ, knowing all of that, we are to be and to continually prepare to be steadfast. Standing firm. And more than that, not just steadfast. The next word is an intensification of the steadfastness. Not just steadfast, but immovable. Immovable. The word in the Greek for immovable translated that way simply means immobile. Simply not able to move. Not just standing firmly, digging your heels in, holding your ground. Unable to move. Romans 8 speaks to this. Remember, if Christ already won the victory, here's a great truth. You can't possibly lose it. Right? Christ already won. You can't mess this up. It's over. Romans 8 asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is able to condemn And the answer is no one. No one. It says then in Romans 8 that in all these things we are more than conquerors. Victory. We're victors. Why? Because we're so strong and we're so mighty. We're we're doing a pretty sweet job. We're able to stand on our own. No, no, no. 
The reason we are more than conquerors, the reason why we are immovable, is because no one is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. No one can ever pluck you out of his hand. Think back to David and Goliath. That war uh, methodology, the tactic, the Philistines, they sent out their champion Goliath, right? And, and Israel sent out its champion, little David, right? But who was Israel's champion? Was it David? No, it was the Lord, right? But the idea was you send out your champion. If your champion wins, y'all win. If your champion loses, y'all lose. Christ is our champion. And he won. It's over. Awesome. Awesome. So in response, and in this freedom, we abound. We abound in the work of the Lord. And abound means to overflow. There's no lack of fruit. There's no lack of harvest. There's no lack of results because God is going to accomplish everything according to his will. Remember it said earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul and Apollos, they sowed the seed. One planted, one watered. God gave the increase. There was an overflowing in the work of the Lord because nothing the Lord does is in vain. Remember Solomon learned this. We've learned it in our own lives. We've seen it in our own lives. Everything under the sun, this world, it's all vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Even the things that we enjoy are fleeting. But whatever the Lord does abounds. And obeying him, following hard after Jesus, church together, putting our blood, sweat, and tears into the cause of Christ, it will never be in vain. Never. And this one last thing. Remember that Super Bowl MVP? He'd worked hard all that time in the offseason. They worked so hard to put that team together to get all the right roster around him. They practiced, they trained, they got in great physical shape. They perfected all their plays. Through the season, the team had to overcome injuries, fighting hard through all of those trials all year. They make it into the playoffs, and they had to work that much harder, right? Because all those teams are better, and they all want to win just as bad. They're just as good. And, and finally, for him and for his team, all that hard work, all that sacrifice, eventually, for that one team, right? eventually resulted in victory, which he got to enjoy for a few weeks before they start all over again next year. Because we have to watch it and have fun watching it, right? They can't just stop playing games, right? There's more money to be made. But all that hard work in the hopes of obtaining the victory that didn't last very long. Christian, what about our victory? Sometimes we look at it like that, don't we? If I work, if I strive, if I push, if I don't mess up, maybe eventually, finally, I'll get there and I'll get the victory. No. Nope. If that's our plan, we've already lost. Are we winning the victory? In our fights, and our struggles, our hard work, our pursuit of righteousness, are we hoping to achieve victory at the end? And that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what God says. When was our victory won? How about almost 2,000 years ago? 
at the cross. Jesus won the eternal victory for all time at the cross. Jesus Christ, you just won eternal life for all who call on the name of the Lord. What are you going to do next? He didn't go to Disney World. He ascended to the right hand of the Father a little better than Disney World, yes? And he's coming back again to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's when our victory was won, our victory. So we can't put trust in our works to get us to heaven, can we? The finished work of Jesus is our salvation. When we repent of our sin and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, he forgives us and he welcomes us to the victory side. We join the team that's already won. Our victory has already been won. There is no more losing. Impossible. God has made us ultimately and entirely immovable. So Christians, be steadfast. And let's abound together in this work, church, in the undefeated, eternally fruitful, guaranteed victorious work of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that as we come to church here today, we don't have to have a time where we're rallying the troops and patting each other on the back and saying, get out there, I know you messed up last week, but maybe this week will be better and maybe God will let you in. God, thank you that we don't have to do church like that. That we can come here today and worship you in celebration of a victory that is already won. And rejoice in your good grace to us, your kind, loving grace to us that you've chosen to put us in this victory side. May we, Lord, uh, live in and rejoice in this glorious victory now. Doing the work of the Lord, knowing that it will never be in vain, that it will always uh, bear fruit, that it will always do exactly what you intend for it to do. Because nothing you do is in vain. God, I pray that would excite us, that it would spark us, that we would live with confidence and boldness and joy and love without fear of what people think of us, without fear of going out there and losing at work or losing at school, because we can't. We've already won. And God, I pray if there would be a person here today who's never heard this, who hasn't thought about how they might have hope of going to heaven, of being victorious. God, I pray that you would work in their heart today, open their eyes today, open their ears, that they would see and understand their sin before you and understand your good justice and, and Lord, cling to you and, and plead with you that you would save them through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that they would put their faith and trust only in him and be saved. God, use us in this way. Be glorified through us today and in this week as we walk in this victory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.